The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. So, all right, we all there? Genesis 40. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, right? So turn like 40 pages or so, and you should uh, find it right there. We're going to continue in our series this morning called God Meant It for Good, Seeing God's Hand in Every Circumstance. We've seen this play out. Each chapter has had kind of a theme that highlights that, that is uh, bringing out a biblical truth of God's faithfulness and this theme. But I have a question for us. As we begin, who's ever played in like a concert band or an orchestra? Anybody? Some people have played? Some? Yeah? A few? None of y'all? Uh, maybe we have parents with kids that are learning an instrument. Uh, some of you? Yeah, you're like, yeah, you should hear about four o'clock every afternoon when they're practicing. Yeah, it sounds, uh, no, that's great. Um, but uh, how, let me ask this. Any bassoon players in here? I need to ask that if anyone plays a bassoon before, because I'm about to throw the bassoon under the bus, and I, I don't, don't want to offend anybody. But no, none in here? Well, the bassoon is, it's a long, it's about three, four feet long. It's a woodwind instrument. It's kind of pole-like, has the little uh, key-like button things on the side, and then it has this little uh, piece that comes off with the reed. And in the hands of a skilled, uh, experienced player, it can sound pretty nice. In the hands of somebody unskilled just learning, it sounds more like a sick goose, all right? I was actually trying to find some like video or something online of like bad bassoon players and uh, just so you could hear it, but I didn't want us to go off. Let's just put it this way. It's unpleasant, all right? It, it can be unpleasant to hear it. But like I said, but in the hands of a skilled, experienced person blended with the other sounds of the orchestra with the other strings and uh, horns and percussion and other woodwind instruments blended together can produce something beautiful. It produces something beautiful, a sound that is pleasant to hear. When seen and heard in the midst of it all, the good conductor orchestrating all those various sounds, it is something that we pay money to go and listen to. Great orchestras, great instruments, and beloved, on this theme, we have an even better conductor orchestrating the details of the universe orchestrating the details of your life and my life and all of our lives to fulfill his purposes. And it is this God who is orchestrating the events of Joseph's life, the life that we've been looking at for several weeks and will continue, but it's that God who's orchestrating the events that we're about to read. So turn to Genesis 40 and let me read it to you now as you follow along. It picks up like this. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. 
So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to them, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him but forgot him church write this in your bible the top of the uh, top of the chapter near the chapter 40 the details belong to god the details belong to God. As we make our way through this life of Joseph, remember there are multi, there, every chapter is going to have this one theme for us to remember and in the midst of this prison, you, uh, as we came out of chapter 39, Joseph, as a reward for his integrity, is cast into prison. And now we see the events of what happened in his life, even while he is in prison. The details, beloved, the details belong to God. As we were in chapter 39, I pointed out this pattern that we see in Joseph's life. It's a pattern of faithful living. I think it's a pattern that if you even were to step back and look at your life and God's work in your life as you faithfully walk with him, you would see this, this kind of four-stage pattern. It begins with success or blessing in following the Lord, which leads to increased responsibility, which then comes conflict or hardship, and then comes the season or the need for endurance. Success, responsibility, conflict, endurance. This was true in Joseph's life in chapter 37 as he was with his family. You see this pattern? You see it in chapter 39 in Potiphar's house. And then chapter 39 as we come out of it, it ends with his increased responsibility. He's cast in prison as the reward for his integrity of not falling into the temptation with Potiphar's wife. He's got this increased responsibility at the end of 39. And so what do we see here in chapter 40? He's coming into this season of conflict or hardship, then leading to a season where he needs 
endurance. That's the stage that we're in. That's what is happening here in this uh, chapter. What, what comes next? The, the details here, God is orchestrating, starting with the people involved. Let's go a little bit deeper. Let's see here. God is orchestrating. The details belong to the Lord, but God is orchestrating the occupants of Joseph's life. God orchestrates the occupants of our lives. Look at verse 1 here as we get into it. It just begins with this sometime. It's really unknown. It's likely a few years past that we come to these events. Uh, Just to give you the the timeline of Joseph's life, he was probably in Potiphar's house somewhere around seven to nine years that he was enslaved there. And now he's in prison for somewhere like four to six years before before he's going to get out. I know, spoiler alert, he's going to get out of prison eventually okay but here's sometime probably a few years from where this chapter or where chapter 39 ends and 40 picks up but sometime after this then these two royal offenders join Joseph as occupants of the royal prison and so these two are they're servants of of Pharaoh the king of the land the king of Egypt and they have very prominent positions and they do something we're not told their crimes it's a mystery to us but but whatever they do they get on Pharaoh's bad side and they are thrust into prison into the royal prison. They are strategically and purposely put into Joseph's life. This isn't an accident. And this is why the the writer here, Moses, is not telling us what their crime is, but simply to highlight that they were strategically put into Joseph's life in prison. This uh, cupbearer, he's like a butler, okay? He would have been serving Pharaoh very closely. And the baker, as we know, he They prepare food for Pharaoh, and the Egyptians were very particular about their food. Verse 4, we're told that Potiphar appoints Joseph to attend, which is very interesting here. Potiphar, the captain of the guard, Potiphar, the one who put Joseph in prison, he sees Joseph's success, he puts him in charge of the prison, and he takes these two royal offenders, these two new occupants of the prison, and he appoints Joseph to care for them. You see that in verse 4? He is doing this, they put them in custody, they're appointed, and they continue now some time. But all the details, all the details are coming together so that these people come into one another's lives in the most unlikely of places, into prison. Into prison. How likely do you think? They, they, they would never have met in the palace. Joseph, this Hebrew man, These two royal offenders that are close to Pharaoh, uh, apart from prison, the likelihood of them meeting in the palace, in the marketplace, they, only God could orchestrate a plan like this to where they meet in prison. Really, just as we think about how God orchestrates the people in our life, it makes me think of like our church body here. Only God could orchestrate and bring together a group like us. People from all over the country gathered here sharing one faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Beyond all these things, God unites us here. Only God can do things like that. And so it's like, it just makes me excited for like the future. Like who else is going to come on the bus? Who else is God going to bring here who loves the Lord, who loves his word, who loves to worship him? Who will God bring among us? Who will he raise up as we make disciples? Who will God bring to our church? And the same is true of your life. As you think about your life, who is God bringing onto your bus? You know, just, you can think of it this way. Your life is like a bus. Who's driving it? You or Christ. 
Christ is driving it. He's, Jesus is your bus driver. Here, don't take that literally. Don't make a t-shirt out of that. But Christ is, he's driving it and he is purposely, strategically putting people in your life for his glory and your good. Those are the reasons why. He brings people into our life for our holiness and for his glory. Those neighbors that live next to you, those coworkers that work with you, those clients that you serve, those walk-ins that seem to come in in random, Family members that are in your life are not accidental, the good ones and the bad ones. But even fellow prisoners, as we see in Joseph's life, are put there strategically. God is bringing people into our lives for your holiness and our good, strategically, purposely. You like, you're, you know, your, pris- your life may not be like a prison. Maybe it is. Maybe you have a prison. It's like, it's an illness. It's a difficult li- living situation. It's a relationship that's in turmoil. It's a job where you feel stuck in. It's infertility. It might be whatever it might be. But God is bringing people into your life through those circumstances for those reasons. And sometimes the path of blessing goes through a prison. Sometimes as God is orchestrating these things, he uses a prison to get our attention and to connect us with the people of our life, the occupants. And we can, we can, get to, we, we can miss the people here. We can get caught up in the pain, but these occupants, these people, God is putting them there too for our holiness, his glory, and I would say ultimately to do as Joseph did and to attend those people. What's really interesting, look at verse 4. It says that uh, they, he was appointed to attend them. Joseph attended. And now that's a, I'm not sure what translation you have, but it, it literally means to serve or to minister to. To serve or to minister to. And this is strategic for us. This is, this is instructive for us. This is what we do. Is God puts people in our life. It's to take our eyes off of ourselves and to serve them. To walk alongside them. God is putting people here to, to take our eyes off the pain of prison and to see the needs of the people around you that you might serve them. Even Christ did this. Mark 10, 45 gives us a great uh, insight into why Jesus himself came. It says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and he, he died. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. He, did, he gave the ultimate service for his people to be a ransom. He attended us, so to speak. Eyes on our pain leads only to, to further pain, to pity, to bitterness, and to anger. But eyes on to other leads to blessing. Leads to blessing and it, and it and then leads to opportunity. It leads to opportunity. Notice here that God orchestrates the occupants, but he also orchestrates the opportunities. He orchestrates the opportunities. See how verse 5 picks up. He says, one night, you know, here they're in prison. They're doing their thing. Joseph is serving. Joseph is ministering to these uh, new uh, occupants, these new offenders in the prison. And one night, I guess maybe the food wasn't too great or something, and they both dreamed. No, we don't know that, but... It's not the dreams that you forget uh, when you wake up, right? It's a, the, these are, this dream takes these guys to where they says they're troubled, where Joseph notices the physical, physical reaction. That is, why are you downcast? This physical reaction that they are having to the dreams that they remember. How many, how many of us dream and we forget all about it? You know, like we know it, we wake up, and then we try to recollect what we dreamed. And like, I, I can never remember those things. It's like, oh, maybe that was a good dream. I should write it down. And within seconds, pew, it's gone. 
But this is not one of those dreams. This is one of those dreams that both of these guys have, and it is not good. They, they are uh, physically, physically shaking. They are troubled. They can't get what just went through their mind. They cannot get this out of their head. And Joseph here recognizes an opportunity to serve them. They're hopeless. They said, they said, no one is here to interpret it. We've had these dreams and we don't know what they mean. There's no one to interpret it. And beloved, when there seems to be no way, when there seems to be no answer, who makes a way? The Lord does, doesn't he? When there seems to be no way out, when there seems to be no answer, when there seems to be nothing that we can do to get out of the situation or to make sense of whatever is happening, who makes the way out? God does. God does. And we see this in Joseph's answer. Because they don't know the way out. He asks them, he said, we have dreams. And look at how verse 8 ends. And Joseph says to them, do not interpretations belong to God. He's not taking credit for his own ability. but He's pointing them to the Lord. Joseph knows this. Interpretations belong to God. And so what happens here? The cupbearer explains his dream. Favorable interpretation, right? Favorable, this is great. Joseph then, after he explains it, he goes through, says, oh, there's going to be this vine, there's three days, all the, all the details that you just uh, heard me read and can see there before you. It's a favorable interpretation. And so what does Joseph do as a request for, of, for the favor of his service? He says, just remember me, right? He says, he comes down there, he says, all right, I've just done you this kindness, now remember me. That when you get out and this happens... Tell, plead my case for me, stand in my place, tell Pharaoh that I was innocent and I was unjustly prisoned here, that I came out of the land of the Hebrews. That's, that's actually really instructive for us. He recognizes the promise. Remember, as we've seen the promise of God uh, unfolding, Joseph knows that the land, the land of Canaan, is actually the land of the Hebrews that God has promised to these people. He says, I was stolen out of here, I'm innocent, and I did nothing that I should be thrown into that pit and now in prison and to get here. He requests the favor. And so the chief baker, he's no, he says, wow, that happened really, that, that was a good interpretation. Well, here's my dream, hopefully something favorable. And does it go really well for the baker? Not so good, right? Not so good. Both of their heads are lifted up, one to be exalted, the other to be executed. One great, one not so great. But Joseph, in his relationship with these two guys that he'd been cultivating, uh, sees a ripe opportunity. He sees a ripe opportunity here in their trouble. He sees that now is the time to point them to the Lord. In my backyard, we have a lemon tree. Have I given lemons to any of you? Some of you have maybe gotten some lemons. Right in, I gave you limes one time. Yeah, that's because we picked them before they were ripe. We thought maybe they were, they were, they were limes. Right now, they're about the size of a ping pong ball, and they're green. They're not ripe. They're not good. They need to come to, the, to the be yellow and bigger and ready to be picked. But I should not pick them right now. When's the right opportunity? Later, when they're yellow and ripe. And God here, beloved, God puts people in our life to love so that when the opportunity is ripe, we are strategically there to point them to Christ. We are strategically there to point them back to the Lord. And this is what we mean by our pillar, unafraid witness. 
This is what we mean by, by loving people, of being invested in their life, that we look out for and we seize the opportunities to point people back to the Lord. When we see that God is at work, we want to point them to Christ. Maybe God is at work right here, right now in your heart. And you're realizing, you know what? I'm apart from the Lord. I'm trying to live this life on my own. And all these songs that we've sung, all this stuff that we've done, I'm not, uh, I'm not following Christ. I don't know this hope. I don't know the confident assurance that we have in Christ. I don't have, I'm, I'm trying to do this on my own. And maybe the opportunity is right now. Maybe your heart is ripe and God is working on it for you to say, to, to say I'm done doing it on my own. I'm gonna put my faith in Christ. Do it now, do it today. Don't leave before making sure that you are right with the Lord comes at a cost, but it'll be the best decision that you've ever made. As you say, done, done doing it my way, done doing it my way. I want to follow the Lord. That opportunity is right now. Repent of your sin, cast yourself on Christ, and you will be saved. But beloved, this is our, our mission. This is our purpose, where we look for and we pick the fruit. We see those opportunities that God is uh, bringing up. Opportunities that abound now. I mean, God, who knows what opportunities God is putting in your life. The occupants or the people that God is putting in your life strategically in bringing about these opportunities that you might point them back to the Lord. There's all kinds of things. Just take the cultural uh, things that are happening around us and they are all opportunities to point people back to the Lord. We're asked, like, what, what's happening now? The shootings that are happening in Santa Fe and, and, and just in Indianapolis and the others that we don't even know. People ask, like, what do we do? Is, is it in this policy, should we have tighter uh, gun control laws? Should we do other stuff? Do we need to arm? Should we live in fear? And beloved, let me just tell you, beyond all of those things, our hope is not in policies or government or anything. Our hope is in the Lord. And those are the opportunities that we have to point people back to the Lord. Say, so, yeah, there are things that we could do. There's policies that we can make. There's strategic things that we could do. But in the end, this is not going to stop because it's a sin problem. And we need Jesus Christ to come back. And, and, uh, and that will be the ultimate solution to it all. And I'm not trying to get on a soapbox, but I'm just trying to point out that these are opportunities. When there are moments of crisis, there are opportunities for you to say, you know what? Well, here's where my hope is. Here's where my hope is. And I believe in Christ wholeheartedly. What are there like tragedies, you know, that people go through, sicknesses or, or, or deaths in the family, those, those horrific situations that we are constantly confronted with, with the people that we love, the people that we work with, the people that live next to us. God has put them in our life so that we can share the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. All the other tenuous things, all the other political things, the gender wars, all the other stuff that is in our life that is, that is really dividing our nation and creating these polarities of you're either over here and you're over here and you have to just jump in these extremes. But the problem with those extremes is it enables laziness and it takes our eyes off Christ. Because we want to point people to the Lord and these are opportunities, beloved, that we have. That we have to point people to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus and say, Does not, do not interpretations belong to God? Does not our help reside in the Lord? There seems to be no way. We are downcast. We are, we, we, we are troubled by the state of affairs in our own life or in our city or in the nation around us. Does not our help come from the Lord? 
That's the beautiful thing, why we can live in confidence, taking uh, uh, advantage of the opportunities, being mindful of them, looking for them, and seizing the opportunity that God gives us to point people to the Lord. And you know what? Uh, You could be the person that somebody is praying for. You could be the person in that person's life that somebody is praying for. One of my uh, constant prayers as I pray for family members or friends that aren't necessarily living close to me, still have a relationship with them, um, and even those that do, I'll, I'll pray, God, would you put somebody in their life that would share the gospel with them, that would befriend them, that would point them back to the Lord. And I believe that maybe somewhere somebody else might be praying for that same thing for a person in your life. Your neighbors, they may have a Christian uh, relative or somebody that's praying for them in California or somewhere and praying for that person and they're praying for you that you would have an opportunity, an open door to declare the mystery of Christ. Listen to this. This is Colossians 4, 2 and following. Paul asks those believers to pray this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Paul's in prison for the very thing, for the gospel, for he's being imprisoned. And even he is taking advantage of the prison that he is in, of the opportunity that God has put into his life that he may make it clear, which is how he ought to speak in speaking the gospel. If Paul had not been put in prison, those other prisoners, he would never have encountered and he would have never had the opportunity to share the gospel with them. He would never have had the opportunity to share God's love with them. And beloved, I just want to point this out for you, for you, your sickness, your illness, the, the relationship that's in turmoil, all these things that you find that maybe be your prison, that God is putting people in your life, nurses, doctors, others, counselors, whatever it may be, neighbors, uh, front desk receptionists, he's putting those people in your life that you may never have crossed paths with otherwise. And he is using that prison for his glory and your good to give you an opportunity to share the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. That's an unafraid witness, and that has to be our mindset. On the lookout for this. Not, woe is me, why did I get here, how did I get here? But no, God, you are using this for your good that others may know the goodness of the Lord. And apart from this, I would never have encountered these people. It is God who orchestrates the occupants of your life and the opportunities that he has put in your life. Only God could do this, beloved Only God could do this. And it's not just the occupants. It's not just the opportunities. But lastly, God also orchestrates the outcomes. The outcomes. Look how this chapter ends. Three days go by. How do you think those three days passed for the cupbearer? They're probably pretty joy-filled, right? Like, okay, this is gonna, I'm about to get out of this prison. He knows three days, if this Joseph guy is right, three days and he is out of here, he's back to his position. How do you think the three days went for the baker? Not so great, right? Probably filled with worry and anxiety and all, all that, like, oh man, I sure hope this dude is wrong. I only have three days to live and my last three days I'm stuck in this prison. But three days go by and Pharaoh apparently throws a birthday bash, right? Big old party here. It's his birthday. He made a feast for all of his servants. And what does he do? These two guys are invited and their heads are lifted up and the events unfold. The outcome is exactly as Joseph had said. Exactly as Joseph had said. 
And as a reward for his service and his kindness to the cupbearer, what does Joseph get? Immediate release and return to his family? One-way ticket on a camel train back to the land of of, uh, the Hebrews? What's his reward? How does it end? Verse 23 is crushing. Just when hope is on the rise... Just when it seemed like things could be turning around here, he does this great service. He's a man of integrity. He's faithful with the Lord. He's, he's got increased responsibility. And what is he, happens? Will things finally turn around? No. Joseph is forgotten. This, this could be more crushing than the betrayal of his brothers and the slander of Potiphar's wife. But beloved, this is when a deep understanding and a conviction about belief in the providence of God carries us. These are the moments when we're forgotten, when we're crushed, when we do not receive the reward in which we think we should get the belief in the providence of God carries us. Now that's a big word, I understand that. We've been really defining it as we've gone through all these chapters. But the providence could be defined like this. It's God's specific orchestration of every detail in the universe. God's specific orchestration of every detail in the universe. Said more concisely, the details belong to God. This is under the banner of his divine sovereignty, of his rule over the entire universe, the heavens and the earth. And this includes both the good and the bad. It includes both the good and the bad. The outcome of every situation is in his hands. It is in his hands. His providence is no less true in the hard times as it is in the good times. Just because you've been forgotten by men does not mean that God has forgotten you. Not something that we cling to. The Lord does not forget his promise nor his people. And for us who are in Christ, for us who love the Lord, who are, are in his gospel, God does not forget his promise nor his people. Isaiah 49, 15, you can write it down, Isaiah 49, 15, but God uses this example. He said, it's basically, I'm just paraphrasing here, he said, it's more likely that a nursing mom would forget her own baby than I could forget my promise and you. Now that's pretty unlikely. You think about a nursing mom, she's pretty attached. She's, every need of that baby is on her mind. Every waking and unwaking moment. But God is saying it is more unlikely that that would happen. Or it is more likely rather that that would happen than I would forget my promises and my people. God is not, a, he, he doesn't. He, re, he remembers even when we are forgotten by men. Juxtaposed in Joseph's life here is this being forgotten by the cupbearer, but in the exact right place, the exact right time by God. And God is orchestrating really the events of your life and my life, including those bassoon blasts that are unpleasant, to ensure his redemptive purposes are fulfilled in your life. 
Whatever sin he's trying to purge, whatever attribute of his character he is trying to teach you or fruit he is trying to bear in your life, he is orchestrating the details. And beloved, whether you've been left behind or looked over or passed by, Jesus here is the great lesson planner. He's the great teacher. He's the great counselor to present us pure and spotless to the Father for his glory. He's working in all of these details. He is in the outcomes as well. A great pastor friend of mine has had this quote. He, he said this, but he said, he says, our setbacks, our setbacks are often setups for God. Even those times when we're forgotten, even those times when, when things don't seem to be going away, they are just setups for God. For God to do his work and that path of blessing may go through prison, which may be a setback. It is just actually a setup for the Lord. And it's in these circumstances, it is in these moments where we have need of endurance. We have need, beloved, of endurance. After the conflict, after the hardship, after we're forgotten comes, what's the last stage? Endurance. Success, responsibility, conflict, hardship, and now endurance. And what we find here after, you see how verse uh, 23 in chapter 40, it ends. It's crushing. It's weighing. It, leave, it leaves us hanging. And we find, look at the next verse in, in, in chapter 41. After two whole years. We'll get into 41 next week. Two years Joseph has to endure. Look how the book of Hebrews exhorts us to endure. This is Hebrews 10, 35 to 39. He says this, encouraging us to this. He says, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have confidence in the gospel. I hope you have confidence in the Lord. That's what we were just singing. I trust you, I trust you. That is an expression of confidence in the Lord. It says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So we live a life that honors the Lord. We make the decisions that are difficult. We have need of endurance for yet a little while, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one, those are believers, those are in Christ, who's, who's, their faith has been credited to them as righteousness. My righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, verse 39, but, but, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, are we? No. Shake your head. We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We don't lose our confidence. But we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. We have need of endurance. The outcomes, beloved, are in God's hands. Whatever they may be, setbacks, setups, they are all in the Lord's hands. We have need of endurance. We don't shrink back, but God's providence, this truth that we believe, this truth that we cling to, even in the most difficult times, is God's providence is the energy in our batteries for endurance. We believe it, we trust it. We say, God, you are at work in this. And that is putting the energy and the faith that we need into our batteries to endure, to do another day, to follow the Lord, to trust him, even in the most difficult circumstances, even when we are crushingly forgotten. That is what gives us the endurance that we need. We hold tightly to the gospel. We hold tightly to the promise that Christ has made to us. We have a hope of heaven. We know his nearness, that he is orchestrating the details of our life. Does your life sometimes seem like a bassoon solo? 
some sort of goose-like song. Turn your attention to the conductor of the orchestra. Turn your attention to him and cry out to him in faith that you might hear the beauty of the band. That you might see what is going on around you. That you might see that the details belong to the Lord and he is orchestrating them for his glory and your good. See it in the context of what God is doing in your life. As we close, I want us to cry out to the Lord in just that. See, here sometimes it's hard. We're like, give us the